Uh, I want to ask for you to go ahead and turn with me to the book of Revelation. And you're like, what? (laughs) I thought we were in Genesis. We were. We were in Genesis. Uh, If you missed it, Wednesday night, we went through the rest of Genesis all the way through Jude. (laughs) Now in Revelation this morning. Uh, No, just kidding. We decided to take a break. Uh, All three congregations are actually doing a little something different. And so we decided to tackle the first part of the book of Revelation. Our series title is very simply, it's just the letters to the churches. And so we want to open up God's word this morning um, to look at the book of Revelation. And you might be wondering like, well, why did we choose Revelation? It's a good question. Uh, The reality is uh, for, for some of us, you know, Revelation can be quite confusing. Um, If you're like me growing up, you thought that it was like this prophetic jigsaw sort of puzzle, and you had to have like a secret decoder ring as a super spiritual Christian in order to be able to figure out the end times. That might be you. Others of you, you might see like the book of Revelation as this, um, this series of parables and allegories of like cruel and crazy sort of apocalyptic images that inspire works like Dante's Inferno and all those other crazy movies that aren't really that good that starred Tom Hanks, you know. Uh, or uh, maybe you're just going, man, that, that book's just too out there. It's too confusing. It's, too, uh, it's just too culture sensitive to that particular time period. And I just don't get it. It doesn't really apply to me here today. And so if that's any of you, well, welcome. <laughs> I'm glad that you're here. Uh, because more than anything else, what we as pastors want for you, and ultimately what God himself wants for you, is to see the beginning of verse 1 where it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation is apocalypsis, and of course you might hear apocalypse in that word, but, and there is some end times sort of stuff that's involved there, but apocalypse or apocalyptic literature means to set forth in signs or symbols what is real. It's to communicate. It's to help people to understand, not to confuse what's going on, who Jesus is, what he's about, what he's doing. And so when we say the revelation of Jesus Christ, this is a revelation of Jesus, and this is a revelation from Jesus to his people. And so more than anything else, what we want for you, what God wants for you, is to have a fresh vision of Jesus Christ. This is what John Stott says about the book of Revelation. He says, We do not need a detailed forecast of future events which has to be laboriously deciphered, but a vision of Jesus Christ to cheer the faint and encourage the weary. You guys feel weary? Feel troubled? This is for you. This was for the first century church as well. They were in trouble. They were in hardship. And so why do we need the book of Revelation? Well, let me just kind of give you an illustration here. Uh, I was invited to go to a, a cohort. Uh, a group of 10 of us pastors got together in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, it was led by a guy named Pastor Robert Chong. Um, he is a, a pastor of care and counseling at Sojourn Community Church. And he just wanted to bring us together to encourage our hearts and to, to, to equip us to be able to encourage other people's hearts as well. And he said, you know, um, uh, he said, life is like living below the clouds. And he gave this illustration. And I actually could connect it because on the flight 
to, um, to Louisville, we had a layover in Atlanta. And of course, Atlanta always, there's rain, there's kind of yucky weather. And so we were on the ground, I was on the ground and, and just looking at the kind of the rain, and the, the fog and the clouds. It's kind of yucky, right? You can't really see too far in front of you. And then I, um, I get on the plane after it was delayed. Of course, it's always delayed. Uh, and then the, the plane begins to go up through the rain, through the clouds, and it's still kind of yucky and hazy. And then all of a sudden, you get above the clouds, bright blue skies, glorious sunshine. Then you look down below. There's still clouds there. There's still rain below. But above, you see this beautiful, blazing sun. And he said... That is what life is like. So many of us live below the clouds. All we can see is our struggles, our hardships, our difficulties. All we can see is the mundane things of life, like changing diapers or working, putting one foot in front of the other. Maybe it's hardships. Maybe it's, maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's suffering. Maybe it's divorce. Maybe it's any, any number of different things. It keeps our gaze below the clouds. And the purpose of Revelation, and really the purpose of all of Scripture, is to lift up our gaze to see Jesus shining in all of his glory. And yes, the reality is true. There is rain, there is sadness, there is pain, but there's a greater reality as well. Jesus is alive. He's reigning, he's ruling, and he's working all things together for the good of his people the people who he loves and who he bought with a price, the price of his blood so that he could present to himself a beautiful bride. That's the whole book of Revelation. We're not going to cover the whole book, just FYI. We're just covering the first three chapters. But that's the idea. And so before we jump in, I just want to pause real quick and say, what is your reality right now? What are the things that you're bringing to God right now? What's on your heart? What fears? What doubts? What frustrations? What difficulties? What do you have going on right now below the clouds? Let's bring that to Jesus, and let's ask that he would help us to see him above, ruling, reigning, loving his people, and coming to rescue his people. Let's pray. God, we, won't, we don't want to minimize our reality. Our reality is very true. The things below the clouds are hard sometimes. There's darkness. There's discouragement. There's despair even. There's even death that happens. We don't want to minimize those things. But in light of those things, we pray that the, the rays of the sunshine would, would shine through the clouds and that we'd be able to see Jesus, and that you would somehow miraculously lift up our gaze this morning to see Jesus in all of his glory. And may that encourage our hearts, we pray in his name. Amen. So today's sermon is entitled A Vision and a Letter. Uh, And so we are going to walk pretty quickly through the first part of um, chapter, or excuse me, the last part of chapter one, and then on into the first part of chapter two. Uh, and I want you to catch this. This is first a vision of Jesus, and then it's a letter from Jesus to the church at Ephesus. And so we're just going to jump right in. 
verse 9. So it says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so this is the apostle John. He's probably in his... um, late 80s, and he is in exile on the Isle of Patmos. He's the, last of the survive, he's the last surviving apostle. All the other ones have been put to death for their faith in Jesus, and that's what's going on with him. It says, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, he is now put in exile on the Isle of Patmos, which is about 40 miles west-southwest of modern-day Turkey. And so on this rock that's six miles wide and 10 miles long, Those 60 square miles of rocks and mountains are going to become a pulpit from which he shares the visions of Jesus and the words that he gave to the church. And as you can imagine, um, this time is very troubling for the church. They're enduring a lot of persecution. In fact, at this time, the emperor Domitian, who reigned in the 80s and early 90s, is the worst of all of the Roman empires. Um, there's long since been not just persecution, but now putting people to death. And he, he deified himself. And so uh, he even put um, his, his, his image on a coin. And he put the image of his infant son who died on the back of the coin to deify him. Basically saying, if you don't worship me as God, you are going to be excluded. You're not going to be able to buy and sell goods. You're not going to be able to, to worship freely. You will be put in exile. You will even maybe be put to death. And so you can imagine the temptation that the church is having. I mean, on the one hand, like some of them are staying strong, they're holding to their faith, but there's a lot of other people in the church who are beginning to be tempted to walk away from their faith. And not only that, not only outside the church is the trouble, but there's also trouble coming within. There's false teaching, there's distortions of the gospel, there's, there's, there's hardship. Um, they're beginning to turn to sexual immorality. They're beginning to say, well, I want goods and services. I want money. And so they're beginning to worship Domitian or whatever they can get their hands on to say, just, just let me out of this craziness called life, this life below the clouds. So you can imagine the, the, just the pain and the, the suffering that they must be enduring. And John doesn't minimize that, say, that pain. He's saying, hey, I'm right there with you guys. I am a brother. I am a partner in tribulation. I am patiently enduring. I want you to patiently endure too. But this is how we endure. Verse 10 and 11. What happens next? I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So John hears this voice from behind him. He doesn't yet know who it is, although we know it is Jesus Christ. And he encourages them to write in a book. In fact, it's a scroll. And he, and he wants actually to write, seven, he's going to have seven scrolls, seven books. And he's going he's to send out these books to seven churches. And it was um, this, this order here of Ephesus uh, on to the other churches. This is the picture here real quick. It goes in a circle. And so off the western coast of modern-day Turkey is Patmos. And so the idea is that uh, a messenger is going to bring the first letter to Ephesus. And then in a postal circuit, this is how the postal circuit works, it's going to go to all of the other churches. And each of them is going to get the, this, these visions of Jesus, this revelation of Jesus. And they're also going to get personal letters to them to speak to their particular situation and how they're wrestling through the trouble that they're going through. 
And so this is not just a vision of Jesus. It's also going to be personal letters from Jesus to these local churches. And now you're going to begin to see who this speaking. And I just want to, re- want to let you know that when we, when we see this image or these, this vision of Jesus, um, this is not to be a picture. It's more to be pondered. Okay? Remember, this is apocalyptic literature, and so these are more signs and symbols, not actual reality. Uh, but they're to, they're to tell us who Jesus is and what he is doing. And so when we walk through this vision, um, John Stott, he says, these are to be um, symbols that are interpreted rather than actual features to be imagined. Okay? So here we go. We're going to walk through this. Verses 12 and 13. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now what are these seven golden lampstands? Flip over to verse 20, and it says, as for the mystery of the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands, we'll get to the seven stars in a minute, uh, it says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So these seven churches, John sees in this vision as lampstands, and they're golden lampstands. These are precious churches to Jesus. They've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. They're valuable. They're significant. And there are lampstands. They're shining light in the darkness. And then what does it say? It says that one like a son of man is in the midst of these lampstands. So Jesus is saying, hey, I am right there with you below the clouds. I'm walking among you. I am present with you. And the Son of Man, if it, it goes back to Daniel chapter 7, where it talks about Jesus as the Son of Man before the Ancient of Days. And Jesus often used this title of Son of Man to communicate that he is the Messiah. He's the Anointed One. He's the King. He's the Promised One to come and deliver his people. And so Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man, and I am with you. I'm for you. I'm walking alongside of you. You're not alone. And that moves into this vision that he says. It says that he's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, the long robes is representative not just of a king, but also of a priest. And not just any priest, but a high priest. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not just the king who rules over all. I am also the high priest who is with his people, who's interceding for his people. So the trouble that you're going through right now, I'm praying for you about that. In fact, I'm pleading your case before the Father. I'm presenting my own blood before the Father so that you can have access to the throne of grace in your time of need. What good words these are for the churches. What a beautiful picture of God's very presence with his people. Jesus is praying for you right now. You know that? He's with you right now. Do you feel that? That's Jesus. Bruce Metzger says that Christ is not an absentee landlord. He is with his people. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Verse 14. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. First, it says that his hairs are, are head, um, uh, his hairs of his head, there we go, uh, are white like wool or like snow. So obviously this represents his purity, but even more so than that, what you guys with gray hairs, right? Represents aged wisdom, okay? Uh, so that's Jesus. 
He is full of wisdom. So Jesus is not only present with his people, he's also all wise. He knows everything. He has planned out the end from the beginning. He knows every trouble, every hardship, everything that's going on in your life and mine. He is all wise. He is over it all. Not only that, but it says his eyes are like flaming fire. Jesus sees all. He's not only with us, he's not only knows everything about us, but he sees everything that's going on. And this picture of flaming fire, it's a picture of judgment. So Jesus says, hey, you're going through hardship. You're going, evildoers are, are, seems like they're constantly at your doorstep. I see that and I will rightly judge it. I will obliterate all evil when I return. Your evildoers will not have the last laugh. I will shame the evildoers. Not only that, his feet are like burnished bronze. It means they're solid, they're secure, they're steadfast. He's a rock. And we put and hide our, ourselves in Christ. We are protected. It may not feel sometimes like we're protected, but, but Jesus never lets anything happen that has not gone through him first. We're covered in Christ Jesus. And he's sure, he's strong. He won't let us go. Not only that, it says that his voice is like the roar of many waters. We were talking about this, these images, these visions with the kids uh, the other night. That's a fun family devotion time, right? And uh, actually, uh, Hannah, she was like, you know what that really says to me? Like, when I get afraid, my voice goes, ah, you know, high-pitched. But what happens when Jesus sees, sees things in front of him that are troubling? He speaks with a loud voice. He thunders like roaring waters. What a gift Jesus is to his people. God's voice speaks louder than whatever trouble you might be going through today. Roaring waters. Constant speaking to his people. And he says, I want my voice to be louder than whatever voice you're hearing this morning. Verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Jump over to verse 20. What are these seven stars? It says, it's for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand. They are the angels of the seven churches. This could be one of two things. It could be that there's actually an angel over each church, or it could also mean it can be translated messenger. That's what an angel is. An angel is a messenger. And so it might also mean that Jesus has messengers for his churches. Who are those messengers? Those are pastors. Those are leaders. And who is being held in his righteous right hand? It's those leaders. When I was reading this, I was like, what a gift for me. I feel, so, I feel weak a lot of times. It's hard to lead the church sometimes. Us elders, when we meet on Tuesday mornings and we pray and we feel overwhelmed by some of the needs of the church, this is a good word for us. Jesus holds us up in his right hand. He is strong and he's not going to let me go. It's a gift to you as a church. He's not going to let your leaders go. He's always provided true leaders for his true church to guide his church faithfully 
through the centuries. Really good words. Not only that, go back. It says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And that's probably freaking you out. Uh, this is a memory. This is a, this is a picture. This is an image. This is an image. This is more than this is actually Jesus with an, uh, a sword coming out of his mouth. What's the idea here? Jesus is coming to proclaim judgment. And that, that sword, that long six-foot sword, was a sign of destroying enemies. And so when Jesus comes, he's going to speak with a loud voice, and he's going to slay all of those who go against him. We're going to learn more about that in Pergamum next week. This long sword. Enemies won't have the last word. Jesus speaks grace to his people, and he speaks judgment against those who go against his people. Last but not least, it says the face of Jesus is like the sun, shining in full strength, overwhelming brilliance. The glory of Jesus. Now, in actuality, John saw the face of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. And he responded now like he did back then. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his face as though dead. Some of us, when we, when we see Jesus, we need to fall face down because of his holiness, because of his purity, because of who he is. Just like John. Just like Isaiah in chapter 6 where it says he sees the holy of holies and, and the angels are, are speaking, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah is like, I, 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 I just came undone because of seeing the holiness of God. And so it's right and good for us to fall down on our faces when this God speaks to us. But it's also right and also good for us to receive this next message, especially in the midst of our trouble. We need to hear that Jesus is overall, that he is ruling overall, that he's above the clouds, that he's the king of kings and lord of lords. But we also need to hear and see this next. Jesus, it says, Jesus comes to John, lays his right hand on John, and says, fear not. Fear not. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Right there for the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Jesus says, I am Lord. I have conquered death. I'm alive forevermore. I hold the keys to death and Hades. Satan doesn't have those keys. I have the keys, and I will put him, along with all those who follow after him, into Hades. That's a good word for us. And you don't have to be afraid. I love you. Do you need the touch of Jesus right now in the midst of your trouble? I pray that the Spirit would would help you to feel the love of Jesus right there with you and to hear him audibly say to you, fear not. Don't be afraid. I got you. I'm with you. I'm for you. I have conquered death, and I am coming again to rescue my bride. So before we move on, let's ask you a few questions based on this vision. Do you see Jesus in your midst? Not just above the clouds, but also right there with you 
in your day-to-day life? Do you see him walking among you? Do I see him walking among me and my people? Not only this, but do you see that your reality is not all that is there? There's a greater reality that's going on. Yes, our story, our reality is really important right here, right in front of us. Jesus never wants to minimize that, but he also wants us to help us to see there's a much greater story that's going on. There's a greater reality that is taking place. Do you trust that your reality right now is not the biggest reality? There's a much larger story that God is writing above the clouds. And one day he will come, as it says in verse 7 of chapter 1, he will come with the clouds and every eye will see him. Do you see that? Do you trust in God's word? Do you trust in his story? And whatever fear you might be bringing today, I just want you to hear the message. Don't be afraid. Not because you're strong, but because you have a strong Savior who puts his hand on your shoulder and says, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. So, Four Oaks, lift your gaze above the clouds. See the vision of Jesus for you and for me. All right, transitioning now from the vision of Jesus to the letter from Jesus, we're going to look at the first letter, which is the church at Ephesus. And all of these letters have a similar pattern to them. Um, There is a description of who Jesus is. It's how it starts out. Then it reveals more about what he sees and what he knows Um, including what he commends and what he corrects. And then he gives some instructions to each of these churches for how to repent. And finally, he concludes with an invitation and a promise. And so the first letter that Jesus writes is to the church at Ephesus. And if you're not familiar with this church, um, it is a, a church that's famous as a religious, cultural, and economic capital. It's a dark city. Uh, Acts chapter 19, as Paul comes into the city for the first time, uh, there was a ton of of worship of Artemis. Uh, She was both a goddess of the hunt, a Greek goddess of the hunt, but she also was um, a goddess in Roman times, the goddess of fertility. And so there was this huge temple, which became one of the seven wonders of the world, uh, in which people would go to all the time, and they would commit all sorts of deeds of sexual morality, and just as a way of worshiping this goddess Diana or this goddess um, Artemis. And if you remember from Acts chapter 19, uh, people even chanted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, over and over and over again for hours. Not only that, but it's also a major port city on the Aegean Sea. And so it brought in all sorts of trade, but it also brought in all sorts of Wiccan practices. So it was a lot of witchcraft, a lot of magic done in the name of Satan. And so Paul brings the message of the good news of Jesus to this city in Acts chapter 19, and people begin to turn from their sin, from their idolatry to trust in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing. Businesses are shut down. Idols are crushed. Uh, Magicians are bringing their magic books and they're thrown into this big pile to be burned up. All of this is happening uh, because when we speak Jesus and the gospel, things change. And so now 30 years later, what is happening to Ephesus? And we know Ephesus is one of those books that we are one of those churches that we've gotten to learn a lot about. It was the book of Ephesus, our book to the Ephesians, uh, written by by Paul. A little bit later, there was some a couple of books written to Timothy, who was a pastor um, of Ephesus for a while. Uh, later on, the apostle John actually lived in Ephesus, most likely, for what we we know from historical accounts. So a lot of good stuff is happening in Ephesus. 
And we would expect a lot of commendation, which we're about to see. But we're also going to see some warnings as well. So let's just walk through this really quickly in the time that we have left. So first, there's a salutation, this greeting. And it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who hulks among the seven golden lampstands. So right off the bat, Jesus is reminding them from this vision, Hey, I'm walking among you. Be strong. I'm in your midst. I'm helping your light to continue to shine. The very presence of Christ is walking among you so that the light of Christ can shine through you and in you and to those around you. He says not only that, he says that he holds the seven stars in his right hand, as we said earlier, like, hey, I've got your leaders in my hand. I'm holding them. It's a good word for the church at Ephesus who are trying to stay strong in the midst of a lot of trouble. Next, the commendation. Verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. He says, hey, you've never stopped doing good. You are always trying to reform and change your city and to bring life to those around you. You're doing good deeds. You're working with your hands as unto the Lord. Way to go. Good job. Not only that, he says, I also see how you're You cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So he says, hey, not only are you working with your hands, but you're also working with your mind, and you see that false doctrine can't be tolerated. You can't tolerate evil men. You've you've tested these these people, and you've you've tested them like like John talks, 1 John talks about. Test Test the spirits to see if they are of the Lord. You're doing a great job. You're speaking truth. You're speaking sound doctrine in the midst of lots of lies in your city. Not only that, he says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. You are staying strong. You're persevering. You're not giving up. Keep going. Keep moving forward. Don't stop. Endure patiently and keep doing it for my namesake. Hold up, my name is the name above all names. Ephesus, keep going. I commend you for that. Verse 6, he commends them for something else. Verse 6, there we go. Uh, It says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He says, uh, this particular group of people most likely, we don't know for, for sure, most likely this is a group of people that were early, what we call early Gnostics. And the idea was that there was a separation between the body and the spirit, between the body and the soul. And so the idea here was that with the body, you could do whatever you wanted because it didn't impact your soul. And so they would pursue all sorts of sexual immorality. And you can imagine, especially in Ephesus, right, the temptation. Well, I can just do that sexual immoral stuff because it doesn't impact my spirit. And Paul says, no, no, you, you are doing a great job. You're saying you are not a disembodied soul. You are an embodied soul. That when you do things with your body, it impacts your spirit. When, you, when, you, when your spirit is alive, it impacts your body. Those things are connected. You are the temple of the living God, and the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And so you're honoring God with your body. Good job, Ephesus. And so by all outward appearances, this is a solid church, right? I mean, they're working hard. They have good outreach. They're they're protecting the integrity of the gospel. 
And so you might be like, man, this, if this is a membership class, like, sign me up. This is where I want to be. This is what I want to be a part of. And Jesus commends the church for all of these things. But, or nevertheless, or despite all that, verse 4 gives a strong correction. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. How's this possible? They're doing all these amazing things for the Lord. They're, they're serving him. They're working hard. They're protecting the church from evil and false teachers. How, how is this possible? How could they abandon their first love? What has gone on? They have taken the external truths about Jesus and held them up higher than the internal love for Jesus. This is religiosity. This is the warning that Paul gave in 1 Corinthians 13. If you have lost your love, then you are like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I commend you for all your works. I commend you for all your right theology. But I have a strong rebuke. You have abandoned your first love. And here's the interesting thing. This is not just like losing the love of Jesus. This is forsaking the love of Jesus. This is abandoning the love of Jesus. This is looking at Jesus right in front of you and say, I don't love you anymore. I am pursuing these works. I am pursuing these other things more than loving Jesus. I was um, at a wedding Friday night and the doors open up. Beautiful bride, full of joy. Can't wait to walk down the aisle. And the, and the bridegroom is at the front. Just can't wait to embrace his bride, right? Love right there. Beautiful love. What happens? Over time, the love grows cold. It's like the bride walks out. In this case, Jesus is holding out his arms, representing his love, saying, I love you. He welcomes his bride. And then we say, ah, I don't need that love anymore. I'm content with just doing the right thing. It's like a tin man with all the robotic motions, right? But not having a heart. Is this you this morning? Are you coming in here this morning just to check off the box? Are you coming in here just to do the good deed? Are you coming in here to somehow just feel better about yourself? Jesus says, that's not what I want from you. I want first and foremost your first love. And the first love is this, that Jesus first loved us. So what does Jesus really want for us more than anything else? Just to respond in love for the love that he's already given to us. Just to go back down to that groom that's at the front. Give him a big hug and say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. It's really interesting here when Jesus, or excuse me, when John writes uh, these letters from Jesus and then he thinks about all these letters, you know what he says when he summarizes this whole entire book of Revelation? He goes, verse um, 5, he says, this is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. He says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. 
So when John thinks about all these crazy visions and things like that, more than anything else, he says, I want you to get this deep in your soul, that Jesus loves you. That's what I want for you. That's what Jesus wants for you. These are letters, not from an angry judge. These are letters from a loving husband to his bride to say, come back to your first love. So if you're in that spot right now, what are we to do? How do we move forward? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us there. He gives us an exhortation. Verse 5, remember Therefore, from where you have fallen. First thing is this. Look back on your life and see what got my love derailed. What took me off the path? What led me to abandon my first love? What was it? It was a hardship. Maybe it was a discouraging thing. Maybe it was a particular idol that you began to replace Jesus with, a greater love than Jesus. Whatever it was, go back there. Remember See what got you off the rails. And then second, repent. You've got to do something else. Go back to what got you off track and and say, Jesus, I'm following after you now. I want to love you first and foremost now. This is not a a legalistic sort of thing. We start working hard, trying to follow Jesus again. No, this is just running to him, receiving his embrace. And if you're saying, well, I don't know if I feel that great right now, trust that as you pursue Jesus, that he will give you, he will give you passion for Jesus. Don't wait to feel it. Pursue Jesus and trust that he will accompany that pursuit with those passionate feelings, those loving feelings for Jesus. And then... With that renewed heart, he doesn't say stop doing good works. What does he say? He says, do the works that you did at first. Do the works that you did at first. But it's out of a delight, not a duty. I want to ask you a question. Would you remember the first time when you really felt overwhelmed by the love of God? Or would you remember the last time that you felt overwhelmed by the love of God? Go back there. Think on Jesus. Dwell on his love for you. Be merry and sit at the feet of Jesus before you become Martha and do the works that accompany those good feelings for your husband. The irony is when Paul wrote the church at Ephesus 30 years earlier, he closed that letter with the words, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus with an incorruptible love or an unabandoning love. It's almost like in the spirit, Paul knew the temptation for that church to replace the love of Jesus with the truths about Jesus. And he says, I want you to have a, have a love for Jesus. And when you do that, grace will overflow. Grace will be poured out as you dwell in the love of Jesus for you. And so that would be my prayer for Four Oaks. This is not just a personal prayer. This is a corporate prayer. I want want to be known, and I want us to be known 
as more than anything else, not as a church who proclaims the truth. We do want that, absolutely. We want to hold up God's word as the truth. But we also, more importantly than that, I want to be known and I want Four Oaks to be known as those who love Jesus. Like they just, they just love Jesus so much. They're just so overwhelmed by the love of Jesus that it just compels them to do everything for Jesus. They, they talk about Jesus all the time. They drive me crazy because they love Jesus so much. You know what it's like if you're in love, right? I just can't stop talking. I can't stop thinking. I can't stop feeling. That's what Jesus wants for you and for me and for that church at Ephesus. And here's the invitation and the promise to conclude. Sorry, I skipped one thing. I go back to the warning. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The point here is that Jesus was warning the church at Ephesus, saying, hey, if you're not, if you're not known as a, as a people who love Jesus, then I will take your light out. Because the reality is the very presence of Christ has already been removed from you. You're not loving Jesus anymore. That's a real strong warning for, for any church, and certainly for our church. We want to hold up the truths of God's word, but we don't ever want it to replace it for the God of the universe, the one who wrote God's word. And so Jesus says, I, I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. But if you don't, take your light out. Thankfully, Ephesus received that warning, and they followed after Jesus. They caught that vision for Jesus above the clouds, and they invited Jesus down below their clouds into their trouble and said, Jesus, would you be with me? Would you love me? Would you help me? And this is the invitation of the promise for us. So chapter, or verse 7, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? The whole story, full circle, is where it comes. Jesus and his Father created us out of love to be with him forever in the paradise. We reject that love. We turn away from that love. Jesus comes down into our midst, dies for his bride to rescue us, and then one day he will bring us back into perfect fellowship with him in the paradise of God. What a story. What a big story that we get to be a part of. But Jesus says you don't have to wait until then to experience the paradise of God now. Because ultimately the paradise of God, the eternity that we long for, is this. I want to share with you a verse from Jesus. This is Jesus, the high priest, praying for his church in John 17. He's talking to his dad. He's saying, Dad, I want this for my church. And I know you want this for your church. And may the Spirit make this come alive in the church. What is eternal life? That they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. More than anything else, may they know the love of God. That's life. And that life can be our reality right here, right now. When was the last time you felt overwhelmed by the love of God? I pray that the last time would not be the next time. Or excuse me, that would be the only time that, that even right now you would experience the love of God through Jesus Christ, through the power of the Spirit, that you would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he loves you.
that he's with you, that he's for you, and that he's working all things together for your good, and that one day he will come to rescue his people, obliterate the enemies, and he'll be with us forever. Amen? Let's pray.